0: Ephesians chapter 3. We have the apostle's appointment to the Gentiles and his earnest prayer for the Ephesians. Hear now the reading of the word of Almighty God, inspired by his Spirit and profitable for us. Ephesians 3. For this cause, I, Paul, the prisoner of Jesus Christ for you Gentiles, if ye have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God which is given me, to you word how that by revelation he made known unto me the mystery as i wrote afore in few words whereby when ye read ye may understand my knowledge in the mystery of christ which in other ages was not made known unto the sons of men as it is now revealed unto his holy apostles and prophets by the spirit That the Gentiles should be fellow heirs and of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ by the gospel. Whereof I was made a minister according to the gift of the grace of God given unto me by the effectual working of his power unto me who am less than the least of all saints is this grace given that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to make all men see what is the fellowship of the mystery which from the beginning of the world hath been hid in God who created all things by Jesus Christ to the intent that now unto the principalities and powers in heavenly places might be known by the church the manifold wisdom of God according to the eternal purpose which he purposed in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence by the faith of him. Wherefore, I desire that ye faint not at my tribulations for you, which is your glory. For this cause, I bow my knee unto the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, of whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with might by the Spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith, that ye, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all saints what is the breadth and length and depth and height, and to know the love of Christ, which passeth knowledge, that ye might be filled with all the fullness of God. Now unto him that is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that worketh in us, unto him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages, world without end. Amen. Thus far the reading of the word of Almighty God from the book of Ephesians chapter three, a powerful passage from the apostle. Verses one through 13, we have the apostle's account of his appointment by God as the apostle of the Gentiles. Now, this word, if, in our English Bibles is proper translation, but let me explain. It means, indeed, inasmuch, or as, or since. So hear it in this way. Since ye have heard. He's not doubting whether they've heard it. He's assuming it to be the case, as Satan assumed with Jesus, if thou be the Son of God, since you are, or seeing, or for as much as you are the Son of God, do thus and such. Since you've heard of this dispensation of the grace which is given unto me, he says. Now this word dispensation means to administer something as a steward in a house. God has two dispensations of his covenant of grace, ways by which he administers the grace of the gospel in that one house of salvation. Paul was a steward of the grace of God, in other words. Notice also verse 3. How is it that he was made a steward in this dispensation of God's grace? He was given by revelation... To know the mystery the mystery now some people use this word in a foolish way and they use it perhaps with our own way of using it in mind when you read a mystery what does it mean well I don't know the answer to it until I get where right at the end and then you figure out oh it's a mystery I didn't understand it some people mean my mystery that which makes no sense I am Adam and I am not Adam well those are contradictories oh well it's a mystery I can't explain it how it contradicts itself that's not a mystery in the Bible the mystery according to Freiberg's lexicon is something that can be only known through revelation mediated from God which was not known before okay so what is a mystery? something that God makes known through revelation that was not known previously that's what a mystery is Not something you scratch your head, I can't figure out, that doesn't make any sense. No. It's something that is not revealed before and is revealed now. And you'll notice Paul's use. He uses it in that very sense. Verse 5, he says, In other ages it was not made known, but now is revealed. See that? That's a mystery. Not known in ages past, known and revealed now by his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. And then he says, well, what is the content of that mystery? That the Gentiles should be fellow heirs and of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ. Is that an unknowable proposition or set of propositions? Of course not. Those are all understandable. Gentiles, that is the non-Jew. Okay, that's, we know what that means, right? What else? Fellow heirs. They'll inherit all the blessings of God's testament. Is that without the ability to be understood? Of course not. What about this? That they are of the same body, one church. Is that hard to understand? Of course not. What about partakers of his promise in Christ by the gospel? Well, you know, we know what the gospel is, believing in Christ, his death for us, his resurrection for our justification. Is that an unknowable contradiction? Of course not. No, it's something that was not revealed clearly in time past, but is known clearly now by the preaching of the apostles. I note then this doctrine, a scripture mystery is not an irrational or unknowable idea. A scripture mystery is not an irrational or unknowable idea. Oh, the Trinity is a mystery. Well, no, actually, the doctrine of the Trinity explains what seems to contradict. How is God three and one? Well, in this sense, he is three. In this sense, he is one. That's not an unknowable contradiction, that is an explanation for the biblical truth. This serves then as a rebuke to those who are mystics, who are romantics, or who are irrationalists. There is a phrase, credo quia absurdum est, I believe because it's absurd. This is the the mantra of the romantics, Kierkegaard and others I will not believe something unless it's absurd to my reason, then I'll believe it. That's the romantic model. The scriptures don't teach that. That's not the mystery of the Bible. Now, verse 3, he says that he wrote this specific doctrine before. Maybe it's a reference to the book of Colossians, a shortened edition that was circulated among the churches in that area, which we'll look at, I believe, in chapter 6 of Ephesians, where he mentions it. But notice he has knowledge in the mystery of Christ. He has a a comprehension, an understanding, an insight. Because God granted him this knowledge, he had an understanding of it. And this is the understanding we're reading here in the book of Ephesians that the Holy Spirit gave to him. It was not made known in verse 5 under the sons of men as it is now. The Geneva notes say, He does not mean that no one knew of the calling of the Gentiles before, but because very few knew of it. And those that did know it, such as the prophets, had it revealed to them very obscurely and by means of symbols. We, with the light of the New Testament, when we go back and we read the prophets, oh, it's so clear, isn't it? Here it is, right here and here and here and here and here. But when they had it revealed to them, did they understand what they were writing? No. They wondered, what is it that I'm writing about here, Peter says. They desired to have knowledge of the things that they were writing down. They didn't understand it all. It was a word from God, that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs and of the same body. The Father has a testament. The Jews were incorporated into that testament with Abraham, but what about the Gentiles? They were left out, right? Yes, for a time. But God promised even to Abraham, you will notice, I will bless you and your seed, and who else? All the families and nations of the earth in your seed. So God promised it even to Abraham. But it was made clear to us in this New Testament that we would be heirs together with Christ. Now Paul is properly assessing himself saying that the power of God and the grace of God made him a minister, verse 7. But how does he think about himself? Notice this, verse 8. Unto me, who am less than the least of all saints. That's a mathematical equation. Did you know that? Less than the least. This is very interesting. It's a, he takes a superlative adjective, least, and then he puts what we would say the, the letters er at the end. It's a comparative superlative which you don't really have, but he makes it up to make the point. The word mikros in Greek, like micro, means small or unimportant. The word elakistos means the superlative of that adjective, the smallest of all, or the least important of all. And then he puts teros at the end, which is the comparative, less so than this. Take the least. Go down further, and there's me, that's what Paul says. I am less than the least, I'm the smallester of them all, he says. A comparative made of a superlative. This is the great apostle to the Gentiles, entrusted with this message to preach among all nations. What of us? How should we think of ourselves? Great ones, mighty ones, righteous ones? This is how the great Paul thought of himself. Lester than the leaster. That's what he's saying. Down there at the bottom, that's me. Let us recognize what we are, what we truly are, and then we may boast in the unsearchable riches of Christ. If our opinion of ourselves is high, the riches of Christ will be esteemed low. If we esteem ourselves low, then the riches of Christ will appear so great to us because we see ourselves for what we truly are. Verse 10 says that this mystery that was given to the prophets and apostles was now also to be unto the principalities and powers in heavenly places that they would know it as well. You know, the angels are not omnipotent, right? They can't know your heart. You can't pray to them because they can't search your heart and see what you're thinking without the words that you speak. Angels, if they're present, can hear the words that you speak. They cannot see your heart. They don't know everything. In fact, they didn't know what Paul learned first about the inheritance being given to the Gentiles. They heard the apostles preach it. And they desired to look into those things, Peter says, as the Old Testament prophets were preaching it. God didn't tell them everything. Do you remember on the Ark of the Testament? What was on the top of the lid of the mercy seat? Well, there were angels, weren't they? What were they doing? They were looking inward, weren't they? What were they trying to look at? The mystery of the gospel, the mercy seat, the propitiation. What is this that this signifies here? It's symbolic, in other words. The Ark of the Testament is a type of the desire of the angels to know about the gospel. The gospel preached unto us. Now, this gospel was according to the eternal purpose which God purposed in Christ Jesus, our Lord. God's eternal purpose was in Christ Jesus. Some believe that there is a predestination sort of mechanically determined out there. No. God's predestination centers in Jesus Christ and is administered by him for the good of the elect and the judgment of the wicked. It is a personal predestination, not a mechanical, you might say. Now, this eternal purpose, how is it that it is eternal? Is it as eternal as God? There is a threefold eternity, the scholastics would say. There is that which has eternity past, has always been, but will have a termination at some point in time or the end of time as the decree of God, the purpose of God. It's eternal because it's from all eternity, but it ends at a certain point. Then there are things that are eternal that start at a point in time and go on forevermore, like the souls of men. Or the life that God gives in Christ. It starts at a point and goes on forever. Then there is the third manner of eternity. That which is from all eternity and goes on to all eternity. And what do we call that? God himself. God is the only one who has both aspects of eternality. The threefold eternity. He having the third of the three. From eternity to eternity, but God's purpose was determined from all eternity, but terminates in time. It comes to pass in time until the end, and then the the purpose is done. Let us then meditate upon the eternal purpose of God. God kept this purpose hidden even from the mighty and holy angels. He didn't tell them everything. Who did he tell it to? to the apostles. Why? For us. So that we could know. He chose and preferred us above the angels. God has no redeemer for fallen angels. God has a redeemer for fallen men. Meditate on that. Is it because we are worthy? No. It's because God is gracious. And what Has God determined in this purpose is the practical result of the knowledge of this truth? Verse 12, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence by the faith of him. There's the practical application. We have free access to the Father. We're not restricted. Stay out. You Gentiles, go over there. We have a court for you. We have a wall that divides you from us. We saw that in chapter 2. That wall is broken down in Christ. We have boldness, unreservedness, confidence, assurance of faith of him. Does that mean the faith that Christ possesses? No. This is what we call the objective genitive. Our faith in Christ, it is of him because he is the object of our faith. We believe in Christ or we believe upon Christ. Therefore, we have confidence because God's eternal purpose terminates in him. He purposed it in Christ Jesus. And if we believe in him who administers the predestined purpose, we have assurance in him. The faith of Christ gives us boldness to come into God's presence, to offer our prayers and petitions. We have access through the great high priest. So then that moves the apostle to pray. For the Ephesians, verses 14 through 21, he's exercising that boldness. Notice his requests are very bold. He bows the knee, he says. This is a a gesture of humility when he prays to God. He bowed the knee. He refers to the whole family in heaven and upon the earth. This is the word patria, where we get the word patriotic, a family or a fatherhood as one's ancestry derived through the father, the family, the clan, or the tribe, or a group of people forming a family patterned after God's fatherhood. Who's he talking about? Jews and Gentiles in one body. The whole patria, the whole family, the whole race, the whole kin of Christians. In fact, the early church, when they were asked of their nation, What family, what race or nation they were from? Well, I'm in the race of Christians. That's what they would say. They thought of themselves as a people united, not to the old Adam, but to the new Adam. Not to their old nations, but to the new nation that they had been united to. It's part of what the Romans hated about them. Calvin notes, he proposes... To remove the distinction between Jews and Gentiles and tells them not only that all men have been brought into one family and one race through Christ, but that they are enabled to claim kindred even with angels, one household, one patria, composed of the elect angels and the fallen saints elect in Jesus Christ before the foundation of the world. He prays for these Ephesians. After mentioning his gesture of humility and the greatness of God's family, he prays specific things that he would grant you according to his riches in glory to be strengthened. Does God have a list where you can say, I've come to the end of the list of his riches and now it's done, empty, no more. Is that possible? No. Inexhaustible. You cannot come to the end of the riches of God in glory that strengthens his people. He prays for that. According to that rich treasure chest, God would, by Christ dwelling in your hearts, do specific things. That you, he says, being rooted and grounded in love, what does a root do? Brings nourishment to a plant, doesn't it? What does a ground do? Well, that's a firm basis. They would build upon a foundation, or a ground would be laid down that was solid, and then they'd build up walls on top. The Word is to keep us nourished. He's praying that they would receive nourishment and foundation, that they'd be rooted like a tree that cannot be blown by the winds. And why should they be grounded and rooted in love? that they may be able to comprehend, he says. This means to be capable of holding something fast, to catch on to it, to comprehend it or to understand it. I want you to understand. I want you to grab hold. I want you to hold fast. This is my prayer. By the power of Christ By being strengthened according to the Father's riches in glory, with a solid foundation and rooting in love, I want you to know one thing, he says, and I'm praying you'd know it. It is the love of Christ, which passeth knowledge, he says. Now what sort of knowledge does it pass? The sort that he's praying for? That's ridiculous. He's not praying that they would comprehend what they can't comprehend. He's praying that they would comprehend what man cannot understand on his own. That's how it surpasses knowledge. Man cannot grasp this by seeking and finding out and feeling and groping in the darkness. Oh, here, now I've found the truth. No, he can't do that. It passes his knowledge. It needs to be revealed as a mystery what we saw formerly unknown, now made known by God. He wants us and prays that the Ephesians in particular would be able to comprehend what passes man's natural knowledge so that we might be filled in the knowledge of Christ's love, that we might be filled with all the fullness of God. We'll look at this in the book. I think it's in uh, Malachi. We'll see that there is a seed of God. And when there were great wrestlings, they were called wrestlings of God. And when the chariots were amazing and glorious and God comes in judgment, they'll be the chariots of God. What does it mean? What are the cedars of God? Something that is excellent. It's a manner of speech that the Hebrews use. Anything that is excellent, they add the name of God to it. That you may be filled with the most excellent fullness that comes from God. A fullness of knowledge of the truth. A fullness of the restoration of the image of God. A fullness of the influence of the Spirit upon your day-to-day lives. This is the fullness of God. He's not saying that, like, remember Christ has the fullness of the Godhead bodily. He's fully God and he's fully man. Is he saying that the fullness of God would enter into me in some mystic trance and I'd become a God because God enters into me? Do you know there are people who believe this? We call them Eastern Orthodox. They believe salvation is by divinization. You become a God and that's how you're saved. Is that what he's saying? Of course not. Creatures cannot become gods. It's impossible. God can take a body, of course. That's what what Christ did. We cannot become anything more than what is finite. So this fullness of God, which he's praying for them, is the fullness of comprehension of the love of Christ. That's what fills us with that fullness, which comes from God himself, which is most excellent. And then he goes on to wish a blessing Now unto him that is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think according to the power that worketh in us. Notice there again, the fullness of God, the power of God, the answering of prayer on God's part. To him be glory, he says, in the church by Christ Jesus. This ends the doctrinal section of Ephesians chapters 1 through 3. And as we'll see, God willing, next week, We'll take up the practical portion. Thus far the explanation of Ephesians 3.